0: Welcome to the Accessible Yoga Podcast, where we explore how to make space for everyone in the yoga community.
1: This podcast is brought to you by the Accessible Yoga Association, a nonprofit organization focused on accessibility and equity in yoga.
0: Hi, I'm your host, Jeevana Heyman. My pronouns are he and him, and I serve as the director of Accessible Yoga.
1: And I'm your co-host, Amber Carnes. My pronouns are she and her, and I serve as president of the Accessible Yoga Board of Directors. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. This is Amber Carnes here. My pronouns are she and her, and I am very excited to be hosting our guest today, Laura Sharkey. Laura, welcome to the podcast.
2: Hi, thank you. Um, it's good to be here.
1: So I'm really excited to talk today about um, your work and about how folks can um, work to make their classes, their practices, their community spaces um, more accessible and more welcoming for folks with disabilities. I wonder if you will take a moment to introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them all about yourself. Uh, How do you spend your time? How'd you come to yoga? What's the work you do in the world? Whatever you'd like to share.
2: Okay. Uh, Yeah, my name is Laura Sharkey. Uh, My pronouns are they, them. Um, I'm currently living in Toledo, which is Ojibwe and Ottawa land. Um, and I first came to yoga, oh, 12 years, 12, or 13 years ago now. And what really uh, drew me to it was that I'd taken one or two yoga classes before that in a gym setting and just found it horrible and awful and I just didn't want to have anything to do with it. But then my favorite ever yoga teacher, who's still my favorite after all these years, Halakuri, uh, she did a talk at a um, at an integ- integrative medical place that I was going at the time. And she talked about how we store emotion in our bodies. And I'd never come across that concept before. And I'd never thought of it. And it just it kind of blew my mind. And, and she did a, just a really quick little demonstration, um, hip opener with us. And it was just amazing to me to do, to just do this little bit of a hip opener and, and notice the feelings that came up from that and from the sensation and, and to have somebody say, so you noticed that and, um, and think about it now it, it, it's important. And it just, it just really it seemed like it made sense to me in a way that nothing really ever had in terms of, of my physical body. I mean up until that point I was basically a you know a, a, a big meat body walking around to to, to to carry my head around I think to carry my <laughs> brain around. And um I was I I'm also autistic so I have terrible interoception I was just not um, not at all aware of my body or what it was doing and um, doing practicing yoga was the first time that I felt like like there was a there was a way to to become that whole person instead of these parts and um, you know I think that's where it's a real cliche that, um, you know, I felt like I was home kind of thing, the coming home thing. It's a, it's a big cliche, but I think it's a cliche for a reason because there is that sense and Uh I felt it of, um, wow, I feel at home in my body for the first time in my life. I mean, I'm in, I'm in my forties and, and this is the first time I've ever felt like that. And so I, I kept practicing and, um, it was a good thing that I did at the time that I did because very shortly after I started my practice, I, I became chronically ill. And, um, at that point the yoga practice was helpful to me, but I I was sick enough that I couldn't really do much of a physical practice at that point. And, um, I've never been able to do much of a physical practice since then. Uh, I do, a little bit of physical yoga. And I, and I mainly focus on meditation and on, um, you know, and on the, the philosophical aspects of the practice. And, right. uh, and it's, to me, that's really where the value is. I mean, you could probably call any kind of exercise you wanted to, um, a yogic type practice if you set the mi- right mindset to it. Right. But, um, um so that's really been what's 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 called me to it. Uh, the thing that that happened though is that when I started going to other yoga classes, uh, since I I only went to to Hala's class for a long time, and and I just assumed that all teachers were like her and that all classes all yoga was like <laughs> her classes. Right, right. <laughs> and then I quickly I quickly quickly found out that that is not the case at all, and I came up against just an enormous amount of bias both based on both my my physical health and my mental health and my 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 size. I mean people I started practicing yoga back when very few fat people went to to yoga studios and I think okay. the reason most of us didn't is cuz there's no end to the silent ridicule and strange mm-hmm. looks and assumptions that I must not really practice yoga or know what I'm doing because if I did, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be fat. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, I started to notice all that, and it was really distressing and it was hard to cope with. And um, it was about the same time that I started getting back into um, social justice activism, which I grew up with. My parents were activists um, in, you know, during the, the Vietnam war and they were, They were into civil rights activism. And so I kind of grew up with that. But they approached it from a very paternalistic, um, we're angry that the world screwed up and we're going to fix it, damn it, kind of perspective. And coming back to it from a yogic perspective, from based, you know, with thinking about addressing it from the from the framework of yoga, really brought me around to a place of recognizing both the need for, um, for the activist, in this case me, to, to be very self-aware, um, to do to the importance of rigorous self-introspection and self-discovery, and also to use the tools of yoga for self-regulation so as not to burn out completely. And um, so it, I found it really helpful in that way and at the same time i was really becoming aware of how how um ableist how um how anti fat anti queer anti everything that um general yoga communities are and were and that's improved to some degree over the years but not really a lot and so um that sort of just naturally became my focus was uh, was was social justice activism um, from a perspective of a yogic framework and and within yoga circles um, as a starting place and um, so then I started working for off the mat into the world which I will still be working for up until two weeks from now when, when the organization shuts down for good, which is a really sad thing for me. And yeah. I'm also very hopeful because there are other organizations now that are doing similar things. And for instance, Accessible Yoga, I'm just like really amazed with what Accessible Yoga does and just really hopeful about the ways that, that, that the whole organization is working and constantly expanding. And um, I really love that. And so, um, I hope to continue working going forward in yoga spaces, maybe hopefully uh, but continuing to do social justice work and continuing to focus primarily on anti ableism and disability justice and and especially in my pers- my perspective, um I feel like where the need is greatest um is in terms of of uh, neurodiversity and and mad and 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 um, what the general population calls mental illness, um, which many people who who experience it do not consider it suffering from or being an illness, um, and so that's one of the places where there's a lot of work to be done. And and I have a complicated relationship with neurodiversity in the sense that. I consider it a disability and I also don't feel like it should be considered a bad thing. Um the disability comes mostly from the way that the dominant culture refuses to acknowledge uh different types of brain wiring as valid and normal. Right. And so I think that's one place where there's a lot of work to be done. And one of the places where that work needs to be done is in yogic spaces where there really is a lot of bias that is based on an assumption of how a healthy and normal mind works. Um, And even the concept that there is such a thing as a normal mind or is such a concept as health is a binary where you're either healthy or you're not, or we can grade how healthy you are or. You know, one of the things that I feel is really harmful in yogic spaces is is sort of this this undercurrent of assumption that somebody's spiritual awareness or their dedication to practice can sort of be gauged by a perception of how healthy they are, whether it's physically, mentally, both Um and so that's one of the things that I really feel like needs a lot of addressing is that um, that that value system that says that 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 implies that there is a sort of moralistic or or um, quality based aspect to a person's general state of health or well-being.
1: Yeah,
2: that's um, right. Which I, I, think, I think.
1: Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. No, go ahead. Sorry. Finish what you were saying.
2: Oh, and I just feel like, you know, it's, it's supposedly this, you know, new agey, but taken from these ancient, you know, spiritual sources, but also considered to be sort of a new idea that nobody else has, but really it comes back to, you know, Calvinist work ethic, ethic kind of, you know, American ideal that, that your health, it, and your well-being is a reward based on you know the quality of your 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 moral being which you know is just so harmful
1: yeah for sure and i you know i think that this is a really important conversation to have around healthism and ableism and how in dominant culture our worth is connected to our productivity, like what we can do, what we can produce, Mm -hmm. or it's connected to our health um, or our body size. You know, I think about the work that I've done in spaces to, um, to bring awareness to and combat fat phobia. And a lot of times, you know, the conversation will come around to like, Oh yeah, of course, everyone should accept their bodies, but like, as long as we're healthy, you know, and like, I think it's important to call out this idea that somehow if we do all the right things in life, that health is going to be guaranteed to us, which is not the case (laughs) that, um, you know, this one binary way of looking at health, which is not the case, right? Like health is a a spectrum and one person's, you know, peak well being is going to look very different than another person's. Um, and I think too, you know, this, this, um, that a lot of times health is held up as a justification for how we're supposed to treat somebody. Right. That like, yes, yes. But The fact is that we don't deserve, you know, dignity and respect and care because we're healthy we shouldn't wait to give that to people until they're healthy. Some people may never be, um, the type of quote unquote healthy that dominant culture holds up. But I think that, um, it's very important for us to you know to learn to recognize the humanity in everyone and treat each other with respect regardless of our health status because we're all up for (laughs) you know that taking a turn at any moment of any day you know um if nothing else has taught us in the past few years i would think that that would be you know that health is not um some sort of like reward we get for being good people (laughs) that um,
2: absolutely yeah
1: Yeah. So, you know, I wonder if you would talk a little bit more about that, this um, idea that um, something that you mentioned was that, um, you know, you had a complicated relationship with neurodiversity that like, yes, you consider it a disability, but also it doesn't need to be a bad thing. And I think that a lot of times you know, we're sort of taught both by our conditioning, but also maybe specifically in yoga spaces that like, if we have a student who's coming to us with a disability, with an injury, with a larger body, with, you know, bad knees, like whatever the thing is that somehow it's our job to fix that person. Um, and so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this idea of like cure and say more about that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Great.
2: Um, yeah, that's, that's a subject that's near and dear to my heart. I think it comes from, I think the originating place of that idea of cure comes from two places. First off, I think it comes from the cultural assumption that disabled people are broken and want to be fixed. And the truth is that there are some people who have some disabilities that they want to have taken away. They wish that they could... Cure, be cured of them and some of them work towards some kinds of cure and hope for it but the reality is also that most disabled people don't want to be cured they want to be respected as whole valuable human beings and to have the the, the community and culture they live in um Respect and value the accommodations that they need that are different from what's considered typical or quote unquote normal and um then I think the other place that that we run into trouble with this is that I feel like one of the things that attracts people to yoga as as a as a spiritual practice or as an exercise modality or it's both or as Whatever hybrid form of that that people um, are attracted to, there is definitely a component of that that has to do with people looking for a solution to the um, unpredictable, unpredictable reality that nobody can guarantee that they will never be disabled, will never die, will never be harmed, will never suffer horrible illness, whatever. All of us are vulnerable to that. Every single person alive is vulnerable to some degree, many of us more than others because of other cultural um, and societal um, conditions. Right. But that, that there's a tendency for people to want to be in denial of that, to try to somehow bypass it and work around it. And I think one thing that happens a lot in yoga communities and and this is by no means am I trying to imply that this that this is true of everybody who practices yoga it's, it's definitely not uh, there is definitely though an undercurrent and a tendency and because of the commodification of yoga I think this this fear has been exploited by marketing and etc and it's sort of wormed its way into the culture is this idea that if you practice good enough, if you're dedicated enough, if you're skilled enough, if you put enough into it, you can somehow guarantee that you're immune from these worldly problems that everybody else has to has to cope with.
1: Right, um, like somehow if so you is la- good enough, then you're not going to have to deal with human problems, <laughs> right?
2: <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, and so I think what that does is that that sets up this condition where if in order to maintain that belief, you have to see, you cannot maintain that belief without seeing people who, who are overtly and obviously disabled or fat or not fitting some other cultural ideal. You have to demonize those people some, or at the very least feel sorry for them or, or assume that they just aren't practicing good enough. And so you have to devalue them. Because you have to believe that you have to believe that practicing enough will will get you exactly what you want, the perfect body, perfect health, um, you know, the ability to manifest wealth, whatever.
1: Right. Um, right.
2: And so there's, you know, that that's the other side of that coin is that you have to assume that people who aren't doing that, who are obviously not doing that, must be doing something wrong. Yeah. Um and some, when and the
1: you know, better than
2: them, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or, or somebody knows better and, or you're, you know, you're trying and they're not. Um, And, you know, and then that, then, then that kind of leaks into the idea of teachers wanting to help people overcome those kinds of um, things. Like, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've had a teacher tell me that um, if I just meditate enough, I won't need my uh psychotropic medications and the truth (laughs) is is that you know what that's not true i've tried it it doesn't work um it helps you know the and i think that's the thing that's the grain of truth in there is that all of these practices of course they help you be healthier of course they do they help you you know they're tools for self-care but that's it they're tools they are not cures and they're not magic bullets, and they're not a secret trapdoor into bypassing um, normal human suffering and and unpredictability and the precariousness of our lives that's something that we need to learn to accept and I think that's really what yoga practice should really be about is mm-hmm. when we do our meditations or or asana when we when we um you know, do self-interrogations. And when, when we get to know ourselves, what we really need to come to know is how are our fears about these things guiding our lives? And how do we instead accept and acknowledge that that precariousness, that fear, that unpredictability, that's part of life. And what we have to do is learn to live with that discomfort rather than trying to find a way to evade it. And I think that, you know so that bypassy thing that really i think in 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 a in an indirect but very very substantial way um contributes so much to all forms of oppression whether it's ableism racism um anti queer bias anti fat bias all of these things um there's a there's an element of that bypass that that really necessitates shoving people into those groups and and coming up with reasons that are their own fault for why they are oppressed right right and so that then then with 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 disability there's that added thing of this is something that maybe could change and we can help these people we aren't there yet with disability we still have this cultural belief that disabled people would really rather be like non-disabled people and for some that's true for most it's not
1: right so what it you know if if the wrong mindset for us to have as teachers is like oh here's a person that i can fix that i can heal that i can somehow you know make whole that's what we don't you know want to do um what what is it that you would want teachers to have a mindset when they approach their students i know that um uh one thing we want to avoid is this sort of, you know, savior complex or treating disabled people yes. like, they're, you know, children somehow or something like that. Um, what does it look like instead if we don't do it that way?
2: Uh, I think what it looks like is first and foremost is uh, I think the first most important uh, learning not to be ableist thing that a person can do is to recognize that there is no disability. There isn't a single one that makes the disabled person less of a person than the non-disabled person. That person deserves the same dignity, respect, and and consideration as non-disabled people. And there is no moral or or um, no moral or character grading aspect to a disability that you can point to. Um, you can't look at a disabled person and say, well, they must not have moral character because they're disabled or they must not be capable. Um, and and I think that, and this is where we come into, you know, looking at the word disability. Um, there's, I'm not going to go into too much detail on it, but but I think the general distinction that i like to make sure people are aware of that helps to explain how disability works in this culture is that there are two general models of disability that that you you can look at one is the medical model which places the disability in the body or mind of the disabled person as in say there's something wrong with that person they have to sit in a wheelchair because there is something wrong with their legs They can't get up to that building because there's stairs and they're in a wheelchair. Um, So, you know, it's because there's something wrong with them that they can't get up there. Then there is the social model of disability, which says the source of disability is in the culture and in the way that we accommodate people who don't have the same physical or emotional structures as we, as a dominant culture, expect people to have. And so from that model, you would not say that person can't get into that building because their legs don't work. You would say that person can't get into that building because we have not built a ramp that their wheelchair can access. Right. right. Um, And so it's two different ways of looking at the disability. One places it in the body of the person, in the body-mind, and the other places it in the ways that the, the dominant culture fails to accommodate and make the world accessible to disabled people. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's why I I was kind of referring to when I was talking about autism, for instance, being a disability, but also not a bad, I don't consider it a bad thing. It certainly does have its limitations. There are certain cognitive, um, socio, uh, social interactive um, skills that neurotypical people tend to have that I do not have um and there's also some skills awarenesses senses you know types of perspectives that I have because I am autistic that the vast majority of neurotypical people don't have any concept of so what I feel is limiting and disabling about being autistic is not being autistic itself, but the way that this culture is biased towards neurotypical brain wiring. And I I have to caveat here that when I'm talking about autistic and and neurotypical, I really should be saying autistic and allistic, allistic meaning not autistic because (laughs) autism autism is not the only form of neurodiversity. And, um, I am speaking from a limited viewpoint in that I am autistic, but I don't know as much as I should about all other forms of neurodiversity. So, um, I just want to put that caveat out there that, um, I do not intend to, to, um, disavow or ignore other forms of neurodiversity other than autism. But just speaking from my personal perspective, that's, that's what I experience.
0: We'll be right back with a podcast after this message from Love Your Brain. March is Brain Injury Awareness Month. And did you know that yoga and meditation can support people healing after a brain injury? Love Your Brain is a nonprofit that improves the quality of life of people affected by traumatic brain injury, including concussion, through free, research-backed yoga, mindfulness, and retreat programs and certification-level trainings for folks interested in neurodiversity and yoga. This month, Love Your Brain is hosting their annual Mindful March Meditation Challenge. Sign up today and receive 31 powerful meditation practices from teachers at the forefront of brain injury healing and social justice like RJ Lissander, Tracy Stanley, Michelle C. Johnson, and more. Their goal is to have over 1,000 people meditating together in solidarity with the brain injury community. And by joining, Your donation helps keep Love Your Brain's accessible yoga and meditation programs free for the brain injury community. Visit loveyourbrain.com to learn more.
1: So I know that we've talked about um, the fact that you know, the way that yoga has been commodified or co-opted, um, into this sort of moral model of healthism and, um, this commercialized wellness that it actually tends to amplify ableism in yoga communities to a degree, maybe more than you experience it in the sort of general dominant culture. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, um, You know, for those of us who have noticed this, for those of us that want to do something about it, what can teachers, studio owners, other practitioners, um, what's important for us to do? How should we start addressing this ableism in the spaces we occupy?
2: Um, I think the first thing is to start with those places where it's amplified and recognize why. And so as I was mentioning before about, um, you know, the whole Focus on wellness and sort of that undercurrent of an attempt to bypass the unpredictability um, and precariousness of good health, Uh, and you know, and 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 typically assigned um, ability that uh, we need to start by recognizing and and sort of interrogating ourselves and second guessing ourselves on do I have an unconscious assumptions about a person's character or the quality of their practice or they're just their general quality as a human being do I have any assumptions about based on what I either perceive or know to be their disabilities um and I think a, a real good example of that is that, um, for instance, it's really common for people to, uh, for neurotypical people to assume that neurodiverse people are, are either um, rude or socially inept or, you know, any number of negative um, connotations that could go with with um, just thinking a person is different, and right. therefore they're seen as they're seen as the problem. They're seen as awkward or seen as as deficient somehow, um, and that maybe what we do is we start to consider in our own selves how. How are what's 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 leading us to draw this conclusion and what's our comfort level with this person? Am I uncomfortable talking to this person? And if you're talking to a neurodivergent person, the chances are pretty good that you're uncomfortable with them if you don't know them well, because uh, most neurodivergent people, to some degree, uh, communicate differently than neurodivergent people do, unless they're masking which most of us do, um, if if we're able and willing, and um, and so the first place to start with that is is I think is is dissecting the discomfort and 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 trying to pull it apart from assumptions about what it means. Uh, I think we have a, a sort of a, a cultural assumption that if I am uncomfortable with a person, there's a reason and it's their fault um we very rarely look at somebody and say i am very uncomfortable with that person i wonder what's going on in my mind that's making me uncomfortable with them Mm -hmm. Um, and it's and sometimes it is the other person sometimes the person is mean or nasty or you know really wanting to cause harm or something and in those cases sure you know don't by all means protect yourself you know be uncomfortable and do what you need to do However, I think that most of the time when we're uncomfortable with somebody, it, it's just as likely to have to do with us as it is to do with them. And, um, and most of the time it has to do with our, you know, familiarity with communicating with somebody. Right. Um, And so, um, and so this is where I think the really crucial, one of the really cornerstone practices in my mind of, of yoga and what I consider to be one of the most, uh, valuable aspects of it is learning to accept discomfort and sit with discomfort and and learning how to self-regulate and and to use that discomfort as a learning tool rather than a thing to avoid and um you know if i can accept the discomfort then I can sort of look at it and see, okay, well, what is exactly is making me uncomfortable? And is this something that it makes sense to be uncomfortable with? Or is it something that maybe I need to work on? And Mm -hmm. so that I think that that's the very first place to start. Um, and, And that really kind of applies to all forms of oppression, because, you know, most forms of oppression are based on us Seeing ourselves as different from the person that's oppressed, right? So, um, with disability, it's no different. I think the biggest thing with disability is that there is that, with ableism, there's that tendency to infantilize and assume that the person needs help and that it's our job to figure out what to do for them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, that leads me to another part of what we can do is don't believe that you have to know what to do for that person and don't feel intimidated or or don't let yourself be um, overwhelmed or intimidated about learning about disability because you feel like you're going to need to know everything there is to know about every disability out there. That is not the case. And while I think it's really, truly crucially important to for there to be teachers who understand various types of disabilities and to know how to skillfully teach to people whose whose bodies and or minds um, uh, need accommodation um, that requires a special skill set. That's very important. And I don't think it's really the place for anybody to start. I think where people need to start is with recognizing that the very first thing you got to do is recognize that person as a human being who, who, unless there's an indication, a definite indication that that person is unable to communicate with you what they need. You need to ask them. You need to let them right. collaborate, mm-hmm. collaborate with you in the solution and ask them, talk to them, let them guide you as much as you guide them um, and learn about it. You know, learn about if this is, especially if it's somebody who might come back to your class, if you're a teacher, learn what you can about them and their condition. And part of that learning has to be about, has to be asking them because just like with any other form of oppression, um, ableism, you know, disability is not a monolith, not even within a, you know, a specific kind of disability. That's I'm great. autistic. I am not the same as every autistic person out there. Right. So you can't learn about all autistic people by talking to me. You can learn generally about autism by talking to me, but, um, And you can learn generally about it by reading about it or doing research online. But the only way that you can teach to me is if you have both sets of knowledge, if you have a general understanding, and if you're willing to engage with me to find out how I personally inhabit that reality and, and you know, what I need from a teacher. And so I think in a way, this is kind of good news for teachers in that, in order to learn to be less ableist, you do not have to know everything there is to know about every physical or emotional or mental disability out there. Um, Start by learning to be open to disabled people and trusting that they can work with you. You don't need to do it for them. You don't need to quote unquote, help them. You need to collaborate with them and be open to feedback from them. And I think that's the other place that where this is really important is that with um, being open to feeling that discomfort is that you have to be willing to be corrected, you have to be willing to be called out once in a while. Um, and you know, the same that's true of learning any new thing, you're going to make mistakes. Everybody does, and there should you know we're taught in this culture to be ashamed of that, and we need to practice um, resisting that shame, because there's no shame in making a mistake, the shame comes, I think where, where shame is valid is in how we respond to the mistakes we've made and whether we, you know, are, hold ourselves accountable for them or not and try to, try to learn to do better.
1: That's right. Yeah. I think it's, you know, I'm really glad you're talking about this because I think, especially for, you know, yoga teachers who maybe don't inhabit as many marginalized identities or any marginalized identities, you know, it can be very um, intimidating, right? We want to help people, but we don't want to offend and all that kind of stuff. And Mm -hmm. I, you know, I get a lot of questions from people of like, okay, I want to incorporate this social justice stuff, but I'm afraid to say the wrong thing. I'm afraid of offending someone. And I just tell them like, you're going to, you're going to offend people. Mm -hmm. You're going to say the wrong thing. You're going to mess up. You're going to get called out for saying something racist, saying something ableist. You're going to embarrass yourself, but this work is worth it. And the more resilience Mm -hmm. that we can build up to kind of sitting in those uncomfortable situations of like, okay, there's this student who just came into my classroom. I really don't understand what's going on with their body. And now I have to approach them as a human being Mm -hmm. and talk to them and, and listen to what they say. And and really fight the conditioning that I have from dominant culture that tells me this person is less than or all of those things that we come up against. Right. Like Mm -hmm. that is, you know, that's difficult. And it's also something that we can build as a skill, just like we learn to, you know, teach a vinyasa class or whatever the other skills we Mm -hmm. had to develop, you know, as teachers, like this is another, I think, essential teaching tool that's worth developing. And luckily yoga gives us a lot of technology for the whole sitting with that discomfort thing, right?
2: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's, it's kind of ironic in a way that, 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 at least in my mind, that's a cornerstone of, of of practicing yoga is learning to sit with discomfort. And yet it seems to be the, the thing that's so elusive. And I think partly that's because of North American culture is that we, you know, everything about our culture is about trying to sell us ways to avoid discomfort and not have to feel it. And yet here we have this practice where we're supposed to learn to do that. And so we, even though we embrace that to certain degrees as part of the practice, we don't necessarily do it. And if we do it, we don't necessarily know how to translate that into real life. But here's Mm -hmm. a way to translate that into real life. Here's a good place to practice it, you know, is, is, And, you know, and I think I would add to what you were saying, too, is that um, I think it's very true that a lot of people stay the hell away from activism because they might say the wrong thing. But here's the thing. If you don't learn about it, if you don't engage in it, you're definitely going to say the wrong thing. It might not be as glaring a wrong thing, but it's definitely (laughs) going to be there. You are going to because we're all born into that. Um, I wish I could remember the guy's name, but there's that you know, that quote that's been going around recently about racism is not the shark, it's the water. And Mm -hmm. that's true. It's like the isms, oppression, whether it's racism, ableism, anti-queer bias, anti-fat bias, all of those. It's unreasonable to think that you could be swimming in that water and not get wet. We all get wet and we all have to figure that out and we all have to unlearn it. For sure. um, Yep. So you're going to make mistakes and would you rather make a mistake because you're trying to unlearn it or would you rather make the mistake of not trying?
1: Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. And I think, too, you know, I um, I think it's important for folks to not get caught up in this sort of like shame, guilt spiral when you make a mistake. Mm-hmm. Like it's not a life sentence to get called out for saying something racist or ableist or whatever. Like that's your opportunity to go back to your, you know, kind of your why, like, why am I, you know, interrogating and trying to interrupt this stuff in the first place? Like, because it's the right thing to do because I want to, you know, see the full humanity of my students, like all of those things. And this is an opportunity to like really learn that in an embodied way. I know for myself, whenever I've, you know, encountered that shame that comes up in the moment when I've said something wrong or done something offensive and I get, you know, called to task for it, like, there's that big opportunity, there's that opportunity or like the desire, you know, to hide, right. That kind of is the, Mm -hmm. this human response to shame or to say, oh no, 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 I'm not racist. I'm not ableist, you know, and pull out your good person resume, which a lot of people do in that moment. But really that, you know, if our goal is to um, be able to start to dismantle these, um, systems of oppression that we've been, like you said, trained into and born into, that those are the moments, those moments of like extreme discomfort, I think that can be the biggest learning opportunity. Because if we yes. do, if we are able to listen, you know, to that feedback, to the critique from someone whose lived experiences so different than ours, you know, we can, we can really change the way that our future interactions with um, you know, those types of people in those types of bodies who we've been taught to be afraid of or distance ourselves from. Like, that's how we start to dismantle this stuff. Kind of, I think, one interaction at a time. So I'm really glad you
2: absolutely you addressed yeah. all that.
1: So um, we're going to start wrapping this conversation up here in a few minutes, but I want to just take a moment to talk about um, something that comes up, I think, a lot with teaching, which is with yoga. Um, a lot of these practices that are so valuable in self-regulation and stuff like that tend to be taught as sort of quiet and still practices, right? Whether we're talking about shavasana or meditation or pranayama or whatever it is, like doing a body scan, like all those things where it's like, close your eyes and put all your attention on your body. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that for a lot of folks who are um, neurodiverse or disabled in some way, that's not the most supportive way for them to achieve self-regulation. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, how to work with the students in our class who we might notice are quote-unquote fidgeting <laughs> and talk about ways uh-huh. to make make those quiet and still practices a little bit more accessible to folks who might find that difficult.
2: Oh, yeah, that's great. This is one of my, you know, near and dear to my heart topics um, because I spent the first, I don't know how many years of my practice thinking that I needed to attain stillness, you know, and, and actually I was pretty good at it because I've spent my life learning to be still, because that's what this culture wants from autistic people. They don't want us moving. They don't want us stimming. They don't want us flapping hands or rocking or anything like that. So I was, I thought I was practic- practicing stillness when really what I was doing was just, um, replicating what the culture had already taught me about suppressing what my body needs to do to self-regulate. and so as I started to, you know, to learn more about that, um, I realized that, that there is, that there's an oppressive nature to the assumption that if somebody is moving in a way that would be fidgeting, if one person did it, it's oppressive to assume that that's always fidgeting because fidgeting has a bad connotation. It's, it's, there's an assumption there that the person is trying to distract themselves or that they're not invested in the practice or they want to be somewhere else Mm -hmm. or they're just, you know, not paying attention or whatever number of things. And it's possible that maybe that person is fidgeting. Maybe they are, but if they are, so trust them to figure it out and, 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 you know, regulate themselves if they're not then that needs to be respected as something that is important for that person and i think this is where we come into again this place of not assuming that a disabled person especially a neurodivergent person needs you to tell them how to be they don't need you to tell them how to be they need your guidance and you holding the space so that they can explore what works for them and for a lot of us there is a certain amount of physical movement um that that is helpful that is self-regulating in a way that it would not be for an holistic person for a for a neurotypical person um there's this thing called stimming which i don't know um Pretty much anybody who's autistic who listens to this will know what that means. But um, for those people who don't know what it is, a stem is basically just a movement, and it's it's usually described as movement. It can also be, um, a, you know, a sound or a, or an echo in your head or a thought or anything. But it's a repetitive kind of, um, uh, not necessarily unconscious, but but sort of um, not not intentionally motivated movement or a repetitive, usually repetitive in nature. And that's one of those things that this culture just cannot tolerate. In fact, you know, the the, um, medical industrial complex spends enormous amounts of time and energy trying to train autistic children not to stim when that is exactly what they need to do to self-regulate. Um, and there's no reason not to. There is nothing about somebody flapping their hands that harms anybody else. But yet we try to train people not to do that right. because there's this connotation. And so what we need to do is recognize that self-regulation looks different for different people. And for some people, it involves movement rather than stillness. And I can say for myself, from my own um, my own experience, for instance, that um, my body tends to rock sometimes. Um, and I also have some other small, um, physical movements that, that are self-soothing for me that tend to self-regulate me. And if I resist them, if I try to remain still, when my body wants to do these things, it takes the same kind of energy as intentional movement takes. So by, I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to convey here is that by telling me to be still when my body wants to do those movements you're basically telling me to do the same thing you would tell somebody else to to move so you're not really teaching me to be still in a in a energetic or or um spiritual or emotional way you're teaching me to move because my body requires that kind of energy to appear to be still um that is so interesting
1: like i just want to capture like what you just said that if we (laughs) have the intention i I just it's so brilliant how you put that that like actually the intention we have as a teacher to maybe like get that person quiet and still so they can experience down regulation actually does the opposite because they're having to Mm -hmm. recruit that nervous system energy to be still <laughs> that we are Absolutely. actually going to achieve the opposite. That's so um, yeah. That's so interesting. I no, just wanted I to like a, maybe recap in, that because I'm like, wow, yeah, that concept is maybe a
2: good way us. to to explain it too. Would be like if you were floating in water and you're trying, you know, you're just sitting there, not moving around, not treading water, not doing anything. You're just floating, and the water is moving. Your body's going to move, right? So it's going to take a certain amount of energy from your body to remain still in that water if the water's moving, right? So it's kind of, that's kind of what it's like for me is like, if you tell me to stay still, then I have to energetically internally, not in a way that you can see, but energetically internally, I have to move to counteract that mm-hmm. natural movement. So... um I hope that makes sense, but
1: yeah. Yeah, it definitely um, does. Yeah. yeah. I wonder um, if you could talk about uh, just a few ways that teachers can either with language or collaborating with their students, like how can we do a better job of this, of leaving some room for different types of experiences when it comes to these down-regulating type of um, modalities that we teach in yoga.
2: I think the first thing is what we just talked about is don't make assumptions about what down regulation looks like for everybody. Uh, like you know if you know especially if you know your students well, probably you know most of them are probably neurotypical and and it's very likely that what you know to be you know the typical ways of doing that are probably going to apply, but if you have students who Who fidget or have some other form of movement that comes up, you can ask them about it later, but don't, the first thing I would say is don't tell them not to do it and don't suggest that that movement is a detriment to their practice. And I think this is really crucial because I think most students, most students are going to um, feel a certain amount of authority coming from a teacher, whether or not you intend that to be there. There's that power dynamic, and so if that's right. even if a student knows better, if you tell them that that movement is bad for them or it's not not conducive to, they're going to believe you, even if it doesn't agree with what they know internally to be true for them. And I think that's especially true for neurodivergent people because we've spent our entire lives being told by the culture at large that our internal experience is not what we believe it to be Mm -hmm. and that what people perceive externally about us is what the reality is. And so, um, it's very important, I think to step back and you can ask people later. I think what's best is ask questions instead of giving direction when you're Mm -hmm. not sure. If you're not sure, don't give direction, ask a question. Um, and you kind of have to discern whether it's good to ask the question right now or wait till later like do you want to interrupt this person's shavasana and ask them or do you want to just sort of observe and if they're not hurting themselves don't worry about it you know there's there's like it's not a tragedy if somebody doesn't really down regulate as much as you think they should in shavasana right it's like it'd be nice if they could it would be nice if everybody could but the harm you're likely to do by Indicating that they're doing it wrong is likely greater than the harm that might come from them not establishing that level of down regulation that you want them to. Um yeah. Yeah. and so I think that you know that, that's the first thing is just recognize that you might not know. And um then I think the second thing is that you know, languaging is to change from using words like still. To words like quiet or or um, words that reflect experience rather than a presentation of something, you know, like when like when you say still, it can it can imply that you mean you know a feeling of stillness, but usually it's interpreted to mean I can look at you and your body is not moving, and that means you're still. Right. 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 So you know, think about the words you use and try to, and I think this goes for almost all. Disability-related instruction is, I think it's it goes a long way to to move when possible from words that convey a certain action to words that convey a certain experience. Like, what is it that you want the student to experience? Um, and trust that if they don't know how to get there, they'll ask you. And if you're especially if you're open to being asked and you make sure they know that, um, then a student can say to you something like, you know, I every time I'm in Shavasana, I, I start fidgeting and I don't know why. Then that tells you this person sees that as fidgeting and that they're not it's not a natural thing for them. Right. Whereas if they come to you and say, you know, so you said be still, but I'm fidgeting. Um, maybe it's not fidgeting, you know, maybe they're seeing it as fidgeting because that's what you called it.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. What were you going to say? Well, I was just
2: going to say, you know, I, I think the other part of that is to try to stay away from telling people what the conclusion is if you see a certain behavior. Like if I see you fidgeting or if I see you moving like that, then I know that you're not, down regulating and and that what that teaches students is to perform rather than to experience.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And so you know I've been in a couple classes where I've had teachers say I need you all to do this so that I know if it's working for you. And it's like, well, first off, oh boy. <laughs> that oh, that you just said is not necessarily an indication that it's working. Secondly, you're the teacher, I'm not the teacher. You know, it's not my job to make sure you know you're doing your job right. It's your job to teach. And if you don't know what's going on with me, ask me. Um, And so I think that's, that's kind of, I think, the gist of it. Does that make sense? Yeah.
1: No, that's wonderful. There's some really good practical tools in there that I think folks can take into their teaching right away. And we've, we've covered, I think, a lot of things that are really important um, in, you know, as teachers, like, no matter how much we want our students to, like, experience all the benefits of the practice that we've experienced or whatever that, you know, that desire to help folks, like, the fact is that our students are the experts of their own bodies, and they are responsible for their practice, not us. And, you know, we can do everything that we can to get closer to, you know, precise language and making a space that feels welcoming to everyone and and all of that. And that is our work, not the, you know, the outcome or the conclusion um, that if we can stay not attached (laughs) to that, then (laughs) I think that's more appropriate for us as teachers, right, to to be invested in you know, meeting our students where where they are and collaborating and co-creating that experience and, and learning more about difference um, and different lived experiences. But it's not our job to um, to really be attached to how, how that lands on our students or whether they, you know, find all the benefits we think they should. So I appreciate you saying all right. that. Right.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I think especially with disabled students, there's a certain level of trust that Non-disabled people generally do not have, in disabled people, to be able to have that self-awareness and ability to to determine for themselves what's working and what's not. And I think that's what people, you know, un- overall, teachers need to need to trust that a disabled person, in in general, all else being equal, a disabled person is just as likely, if not more likely, than a non-disabled person. To know what their body needs. And that doesn't mean that all dis- people, disabled people do know, but not all non disabled people know either. And the teacher's <laughs> <right. you> know, <laughs> job to sort of suss that out. Um, it's not different for a disabled student than for an able student, the non disabled student. It's the same applies. You have to trust them to a certain degree and You have to teach to a certain degree and use what you know, and you have to find that balance and and that's kind of the hard part of it. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. But that you don't want to come at a disabled student with the assumption that they need your help and they don't know. You need to, you know, kind of get to know them and learn about them and find that out based on your experience interacting with them, not because of what you know or don't know or or presume or assume about their disability.
1: That's right. That's right. Well, thank you so much, Laura. I'm I'm really glad we got to have this conversation. I think we Me you've can. touched on on so many important points that um, you know we can continue to to work on and embrace whether we're teachers or just yoga students who are encountering folks that may be different from us. And I so appreciate your perspective here. I'm wondering at the close here, are there any final thoughts you'd like to leave folks with, or can you tell us um, how do folks find you? Do you have any, anything coming up you'd like folks to know about?
2: Keep an eye out, everybody. Just, just pay attention to your, to, to the way that you interact with people that are either disabled or that you presume to be disabled or, about the way that you assume people are not disabled if you can't see it. And just kind of think about the assumptions you make. And that's, I guess that would be my my final thing to say is just learn learn to question your own assumptions about disability and ableism and and what people need or want from you as a teacher. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah thank you so much laura for your time and your expertise i really appreciate it thank you uh, great thank you everybody for listening we'll see y'all next week
0: thanks for joining us for the accessible yoga podcast we're so grateful to be in community with you
1: Please check out our website, AccessibleYoga.org, to find out more about our upcoming programs, including our annual Accessible Yoga Conference. At our website, you can also learn more about how to become an Accessible Yoga Ambassador and support the work that we are doing in the world.
0: Please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review wherever you listen. We'd love to hear your
1: thoughts. You can also submit a question or suggest a topic or potential guest you'd like us to interview at AccessibleYoga.org. See you next time.